Hello and welcome to another episode of Connecting the Dots. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist System. Hey everybody, I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital, DeSoto. And today we're very honored to have John Deuce on the program. Uh, John is the chief learning officer for his organization. John, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you tell us just a little bit of your background and what you do? Sure. Yeah, I currently serve as the chief learning officer for uh, a small network of public charter schools in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, previous to sort of moving over to this role in our home office about seven years ago, prior to that, I was a, a principal in our network and a, and a dean of academics and then um, came, came to this organization uh, uh, through some prior service in a, a similar school in Denver, where I was the director of curriculum instruction at a similar uh, charter school. And then uh, before that, I taught in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and sort of went to grad school sort of in between the Atlanta and the uh, and the Denver gigs. Well, John, once again, thank you for being here. What does what does a chief learning officer in a, in a school system, what, what does that job entail? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it shifted over time. Um, uh, it, you know, I originally oversaw our, our school principals as we were sort of um, in our growth phase, launching schools. So I'd help new principals design and get their schools started and then support principals of existing schools. So I did that uh, when I first moved over to the home office for a few years. And then um, we uh, added a chief schools officer that sort of acts like the superintendent over those schools now. And I now mostly focus on continual improvement, sort of organizational learning and development and sort of uh, support the, the whole network in that way on the improvement and sort of measurement front. So, you know, you know, you brought up continuous improvement, which is, you know, one of the, the many themes of, of this podcast series. And uh, one of the questions we'd like to ask a lot of our guests is, how did you get into continuous improvement? So just take us through that journey uh, for you. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I think I would use the words, you know, a decade or more ago, continuous improvement without actually knowing anything about the methods. Um, certainly, uh, you know, maybe have an inclination towards that type of uh, mindset or that approach to work, even before I sort of knew it as a methodology. I think originally, you know, we would write these internal manuals that would sort of document our, I guess you'd call sort of standard work in different areas like curriculum or like um, how a classroom would run, uh, the culture of the school. And we would sort of think about and learn what worked in those different areas across the school year. And then we would update them in the summer and then train new staff using those manuals as a foundation. So that's sort of before I had any sort of technical vocabulary. And then I was introduced to a book called Learning to Improve um, out of the Carnegie Foundation out in Palo Alto. And they uh, took up improvement science as sort of what they were focused on uh, maybe in 2010 or so. And the president at the time was named Tony Bright, and he wrote this book. And it was that was my more formal introduction to continuous improvement. And I um, started going to their annual improvement summit, reading a lot and um, I would say then I was sort of focused on the tools, you know, the tools of a continuous improvement, driver diagrams, fishbone diagrams, root cause analysis, and things of that nature. And then a, then a couple of years ago through a sort of, you know, following various lines of thoughts and different books I was reading and podcasts I was listening to, 
um, was exposed to W. Edward Deming's work. And since that time, I, I think that his system of profound knowledge, his theory, has had a profound influence on, on how I think about this work. And um, I sort of added an underlying theory, a way of thinking, I guess, to, to, to my continual improvement work to go with those tools, which I actually think is the more important side of the work. And so that's been a lot of my focus in the last last couple of years here. So you, you've been like a lot of us, you, you've just kind of been self-taught, mm -hmm. you know, reading, listening to podcasts, reading books. Um, you, you mentioned improvement science, and, and that's a term that that a lot of us aren't real familiar with. And, you know, there are a lot of providers and physicians on this that listen to this podcast. And when we talk about improving, a lot of times we say, well, we just have to try harder. <laughs> we just have to do better. And and we say that because we really don't know how to improve. And and talk to us a little bit a little bit about improvement science and and, and what that actually is. Yeah, my first exposure to that terminology in particular was through that that Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching and their Improvement Summits. They used that terminology, improvement science. Um, I just read an article this week um, that that said the science of improvement, that sort of terminology was coined in 1996. So it's a pretty recent sort of, uh, um, I guess, discipline. And um, I should probably mention too, you mentioned sort of informal and formal learning. I, I originally was doing a lot of books and podcasts and things like that. Right now, I'm actually in the Improvement Advisor Program through the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And that's where that sort of article came across my desk. But I think improvement science really is just, it's a disciplined way to try to tackle problems in complex systems. And I think there's there's psychological components to that. I think there's how we create knowledge components to that. I think there's sort of how we understand variation in our data. I think that's a, another component. And I think uh, another big thing is just um, seeing the organizations we work in in as a system for sort of blaming you know individual people for problems we see. And so sort of, I think bringing those four areas together in particular is, is what I sort of think of as the science of improvement. And you sort of combine that um, that that type of knowledge you get from those four areas with you know, the subject matter expertise that's present in your organization. In my case, it's, you know, educators and teaching techniques and that type of thing. And, and uh, you bring those two things together and then, um, you know, if possible, also include the sort of frontline people. So the people that are closest to the work. So in our case, it's students. So we, we want to bring them into the fold um, in those improvement efforts. So I think that's those, for me, the science of improvement is those, those three things, the profound knowledge, the, the subject matter knowledge, and then sort of the inclusion of the, the frontline people in the, in the effort. Yeah. I, I would love to hear a little bit more about, um, how it's actually done in, in the educational uh, space, you know, in healthcare, sometimes when we, early on, when we were trying to introduce continuous improvement, we'd always get some pushback that healthcare was different. Um, this was not manufacturing, patients are not widgets. Mm -hmm. I would imagine there's similar parallels in the educational space. So tell us a little bit about some of the challenges and then um, uh, and the actual mechanics of the work you're doing. Yeah, I think that's a that's a fair a fair criticism um, that that you know patients aren't widgets, students aren't widgets. Um, I do think the the way that um, W. Edwards Deming approached it, for example, his sort of system of profound knowledge is transferable from, you know, 
uh, industry to healthcare to education. So I, I think that's actually part of the power. I think I see part of my job as sort of unpacking that for people. So whereas I would start with um, the tools that I mentioned in the past, now I, I step back and talk about the way of thinking. And I think um, thinking about who the worker is, is a really important part of that unpacking. And um, something that really clarified my thinking and working with uh, an executive coach who does this type of work, you know, he said, you know, the students are the worker in your system. And what's being produced or what we're hoping to produce is high quality of learning. So that's, so, so that's interesting. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but you know, when I was thinking, I was initially <laughs> thinking that the teacher would be your worker, just like we kind of focus on our front line is the nurses and the physicians, as opposed to the patients who I would equate with the students. So, mm -hmm. so y'all focus on the students as the, the front line worker. That to me, that's, that's different from what we do. That's interesting. I, I've never thought about it that way. Yeah, I think in general, that was a big mindset shift because I think I was like you prior to sort of hearing that explained in that way. But it made a lot of sense because ultimately the thing that is being created is being created by students. No matter how good the teachers or the principals are, what actually has to happen that's most important education has to happen in the brain, the mind, you know, the mind of the, the students that we're working with. So I think I think the, the analogy works. And um I think that's helped frame my thinking for then how do we approach improvement? And maybe even there's a parallel there in healthcare because the patient ultimately is, you know, the most sort of responsible for their health outcomes or, or maybe has the most control, you know, how they live their life and all those types of things in the same way the student has to do the, the thinking at the end of the day. So we think of the sort of the teachers as the supervisor to sort of continue out that analogy and then the board and the superintendent has to set the conditions for you know the right culture for the improvement to take place and so that's how we kind of think about it tell tell us tell us about a, a, a big improvement project that, that you guys did just kind of walk us through it so we could kind of see, see your process yeah i'd say it's um you know it's still a fairly new process in, in terms of working with teams. But one of the things that I did, um, I kind of accidentally went backwards, sort of like I did with the learning the tools and then the way of thinking. Um, the Gates Foundation over the last five or six years got heavily involved in funding continuous improvement work in schools. And so originally it was about working in you know, networks of organizations to sort of solve a, a problem that you shared across those organizations. And they had a line of grant making that went along with that type of work. And so I went after those and sort of realized after the fact that I really had no chance because there are these, you know, giant organizations that were serving as hubs for large numbers of schools. But eventually they came out with a sort of a, a, a different type of grant where they were focused on building capacity in individual organizations to do continuous improvement. That fit much more with what I was trying to do here. So two years ago, I went after one of those grants, got it. And what we actually did was launch a continual improvement fellowship. So teachers and school leaders can go through that fellowship. We're on our second cohort right now. And they actually do improvement projects while learning this methodology. So one of them that I'm thinking about right now is um, there's a fourth grade science teacher at one of our elementary schools. and um, She's working with her students to actually increase joy and in learning in that science class. 
And so they're using a method, they're sort of charting their uh, student survey data and they're doing this all together. And she's sort of gathering feedback uh, on an ongoing basis about what, you know, it, it, we, you know, there was high joy in this series of lessons. What was it that brought that, brought you joy, brought you to feel engaged during the lesson? And so that's an example of a, an improvement project that um, heavily involves students and is meaningful, you know, it's meaningful because if students are engaged and students are finding joy and they're learning, then they're going to be more engaged. The outcomes are going to be better. I think um, it's safe to assume. Um, so it's projects like that, you know, things that are, you know, really hard to hard to hard to improve, the, the hard to bring back about meaningful change. But, you know, originally when we were doing these, we would often form like an adult team, but we were leaving out that really important component of the student. And, you know, that's really where the change happens. So we started involving them in these improvement efforts. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about that. How do you approach the students? How do you, how do you talk to the parents about uh, participating in these, these projects? How do you describe what you're trying to do when you're bringing them into the fold? Yeah, that's a good question. So with the students, um, I think it's just sort of conversations over time with the teacher. Hey, you know, I'm in this, they actually said, I'm in this fellowship. We're, we're working on um, uh, making the school better. What are some things that we could work on as a team, as a class that would make, you know, my science class more enjoyable? So they're actually sort of listing those out, brainstorming, categorizing those problems, and then starting to think about, you know, what's the specific problem? we want to focus on what are some of the causes, what are some of the obstacles to that joy in learning? Um, and then they they started developing a theory for improvement. So it's very much like the methodology is very much like what an adult team would do. Um, you know, maybe just the conversation is framed a little differently for uh, fourth graders. And then a lot of the steps that I'm talking about are actually just put on chart paper and they're posted in the classroom so students can see it, which I think is another thing. Oftentimes the things that we want to improve with students are hidden from them. Like attendance rates are down. Well, kids don't even know that most of the time, you know? So part of it is at, at least at the class level, you know, of course the data is aggregated, uh, but they're they're able to see charting over time. Like how is our attendance rate? I didn't know our attendance rate was lower on Tuesdays, you know, those types of things. And then, then they can have conversations about how to sort of improve that. You, you, you know, so you, you actually have visual management, you know, of course, you, the, the students wouldn't call it visual management, but uh, yeah. that, that's essentially what it is. Yep. Um, and you, you talked about uh, you talked about run charts and, and I, I want to get your thoughts on those um, process behavior charts. I'm, I'm a big process behavior chart fan because and I really think. I think that, that if we could do if we did one thing to really help us improve, it would be really understanding and using uh, process behavior charts. And, and I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I would agree 100 um, percent. So we she's actually using she used a run chart early on and then transitioned it to a process behavior chart once she had enough data. So in addition to the, the Deming influence, um, Donald Wheeler is another big influence. Um, we actually, in addition to the Gates grant, we got a Dell grant at the same time. We're building up some of our uh, data infrastructure. And um, 
one of the things that that grant does is is it helps you build the capacity internally in an organization like ours where we don't have a lot of sort of uh, technical capacity. They're sort of teaching us that. And then we we actually brought to them process behavior charts and they're now very interested. So that was a completely different way to look at data than than what they had been used to. Um, and I think one of the things I took from Donald Wheeler's, uh, we took a two day uh, course, seven of us with him, a seminar um, paid for through that Dell grant. And, um, you know, he said that continual improvement equals process behavior charts, intermediate statistical methods like process behavior charts. So they're sort of one in the same, you know, understanding the variation in your data, the ups and downs, knowing when to react, and even probably more importantly, know when not to react or overreact or tamper and, you know, in the Deming Wheeler language, that's just as important. And so, I think, you know, even if even if all of you do is take those numbers out of a spreadsheet or a table and put them on a chart over time, even without the, the limits, which are you know fairly easy to calculate, but you know, they do intimidate some people. So just plotting the dots over time is way more powerful than the than the charts. And so we've we've started building our dashboards to include those process behavior charts so we can look at look at the data over time. So I'm I'm right with you with the with the charting. You know, so that's it's pretty fascinating. You you brought this new mindset and way of thinking about improving because everybody's trying to improve their school. I, I would mm -hmm. take it, but very few, I would think, were, are using this sort of methodology. I don't know. I, I'm not in this area. Uh, but but how do y'all's outcomes, I guess, compare to your peers um, using this methodology? Um, well, I think you're right. I I had never seen it. it anywhere um, in education. I'd seen it in industry and I'd seen it in healthcare a little bit, but I'd never seen it anywhere in education. Not, I'm sure it exists somewhere, but I had never seen it in you know 20 years. So I think you're right on that front. I think um, historically, so we we serve, we have a, an elementary and a middle school on the east side of downtown and an elementary and a middle school on the west side of downtown. So we're a four school network. Uh, just about 100% of our kids are economically disadvantaged. Um, and our, so our whole mission is about, um, you know, better service, better outcomes for students that have maybe traditionally been underserved. So historically, we've had, you know, um, really good outcomes. I think what we're trying to do now is, you know, not be satisfied that we're sort of outperforming the local district because there's still a gap there um, and, and so a lot of room for improvement. But I think, you know, the, the type of person that we're sort of uh, trying to hire, we stress mission alignment and what we're trying to do here sort of on that front end. And I think on the back end, then that helps with this idea of continual improvement and learning because the, the people that we hire, we very much build that into the process of selection. So I think when there's something new that comes across, um, like continual improvement or using process behavior charts, by and large, the vast majority of people are very open to these ideas and actually hungry for it. I mean, you know, it's a challenging environment, but everybody's trying to get better really at the end of the day. Um, so it's 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 great to have people that are open to it. And and I think even though we didn't have this language before, we had this idea that we we were responsible for building strong systems. It's like that sports analogy where that, you know, star football player uh, goes to a mediocre or worse team and they just sort of don't 
have great performance. And then you have an average player that goes to a, re- a really good team, and it's that system that sort of they sort of outperform maybe what their talent level was coming in because of that good system. And I think it's the same thing pretty much everywhere. When you can build good systems that support people, then you you know you, you set them up for success in that way. Yeah, you, you talk about the people that you that y'all hire. I mean, that, that's just that's a common thread. You know, no matter where you are, is that you know you have your principles, and your principles drive your behaviors, and then those behaviors will drive the results. And and if you if you have that right culture, and you have the right principles that that are going to drive those behaviors, it doesn't matter what type of tool you give them because there are so many. You know they're they're going to adopt it and they're and they're going to they're they're going to run with it and 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 uh, really help you improve. Yep, I agree, hundred percent. So you know we talked a little bit about how about how you get the the students involved in the continuous improvement process. Um, and, and in healthcare, we have you know occasionally in the past, I think it's getting better, but we always say. Uh, that some of our obstacles um, to some of the projects for improvement are, are ourselves. So HF and I talk about being physicians, and a lot of us are resistant to change. Um, how does it work in the educational sphere with regards to teachers? Especially, maybe you have a teacher that is a, a very high performer, um, they have a set way of doing things, and uh, they believe their way is the best way. How do you bring them into uh, being open about um, changing things and, and adapting new processes yeah one of the things i worked with uh, a guy named david langford who may be like the deming you know guy in education has done it for 35 years or so i asked him that question because some of the deming stuff specifically is 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 you know some of his principles are fairly radical and um David said, well, preach to the masses and work with the willing. So that's a little bit sort of um, kitschy, but, you know, I do take something from that. So one of the things is I've tried to um, sort of let people know across the network. I mean, we're not a super large organization. We only have 125 staff members, but, you know, their schedules are pretty locked down. It's four different buildings. So it's not easy to, you know, it's not simple communication. But what I've tried to do is make this fellowship, for example, known to people. And then when, you know, people may have sort of a certain perception of um, what we do during the fellowship, I don't think many of them would have understood that working on joy and learning was sort of a possibility. I think they would have thought, oh, we're improving science grades or GPAs or test scores or something like that, which, you know, those could be projects, but so could joy and learning and and be very meaningful. So, I, you know, I try to tell those stories, uh, you know, across the network, either through email or we have a everybody at each school has a daily huddle. So going to those and, you know, speaking about what we're doing. Um, I think that, you know, there's some other things I've done, like, you know, I've, I've had a coffee and continual improvement, for example, so people could come and sort of learn in a more informal setting what we're trying to do on the improvement front. And I think then too, when we get kids involved, when we get students involved, I think people get, you know, naturally excited about, oh, I, I've never been on an improvement team with a, a student, or I didn't know I could do this with my, you know, class of, of students. Um, so I think in those, just, in, just in, in, in lots of different ways like that, we try to sort of make it known what this is and, you know, continually communicate about it, tell the stories, 
and especially the stories of the projects that are going on at the classroom level, which is why I wanted I, I, anybody can do it in terms of the fellowship, but I really market it to teachers because I think that's where the most powerful sort of improvement can happen in you know in a school system. I'm just curious what what are what are some of the leading indicators and lagging indicators that you guys are, are measuring now or working on? We actually we just had a leadership team meeting today and we're talking about that. I mean, I think, you know, I think one thing that we want to add as a lagging indicator is I mentioned we're we're really just a K to eight system right now, and then we we do have a high school placement and alumni services program. So we actually have a staff members that are dedicated toward working with eighth graders and their families to help them sort of navigate what's next for high school. And then they actually we have an alumni person that follows them and supports them through high school and even into college. So I think the 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 lagging indicator that's the most lagging is like, you know, when a kid has gone through our system and they're 25, 26, 27, they have some perspective to look back. Did we set you up for long-term success? That's probably the indicator that we're, we're most uh, most interested in. It's probably the hardest one to track down, you know, scientifically. But I think Deming said something like the most important measures are unknown and unknowable. And I think that's one of them. Like, um, so we're trying to get, trying to put some systems in place to actually get that data as a feedback loop to our system. I think um, sort of an intermediate outcome measure for us is that's lagging is test scores. I mean, state test scores are sort of still a big focus. Um, you know, they're not super useful for improvement purposes because they, you know, they come in after students are on summer break. Um, some of the leading indicators, I mean, we have internal assessments, teachers sort of um, created assessments, exit tickets from individual lessons. We track attendance pretty closely. Um, we actually have sort of like a management system for students where they can earn points. And um, so we can see how they're doing over time, you know, against our value system and things like that. And so there's a number of things that we're tracking at both the leading and the lagging levels. And, you know, some of those, you know, or most of those, I would say, sounded like uh, outcome metrics. What about process metrics? Are you all doing anything with regards to those? Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't. So I, what I would say is like we probably haven't used that terminology until um well i shouldn't say that so we did we did do a project when school shut down that was focused on remote learning engagement so you know as you could expect compared to attendance in in school sessions the remote learning engagement was lower mm -hmm. and so we did have a team that was focused on that and one of the process measures is we were doing um, our sort of system was doing recorded asynchronous sessions, class sessions. So students would log into our student information system and then get the recorded lesson for the day and then work on the practice that went along with it. One of the process measures became, well, the outcome measure was how do we increase daily engagement levels? The process measure was if a couple of these teachers, they were seventh grade ELA teachers, English teachers, um, if they offered these live sort of intervention sessions in the afternoon, would that increase engagement and the outcome measure being engagement. Um, so, so that was an example of a specific to an improvement project where we put a process in place that we were hoping led to, to, to more engagement in the remote learning lessons. And it did not actually, which, you know, is 
you know, the advantage, at least it didn't in the time period we were looking at it. So, you know, the, I guess, you know, we learned something and, you know, we learned it with two people, two teachers, instead of saying, no, we're going to start offering these live lessons and we're going to go system wide. And then we're going to find out they didn't work after we, you know, put all these processes in place. So they're still learning that happened. Well, that's good though, because, you know, a lot of times I feel like we put things in place, assuming they work and then never measure whether they're successful. Um, Yeah. I mean, and I I liked hearing you say you, you did it, basically did an experiment it didn't turn out the way you thought it would, but, but, you know, we think of that a lot of, as a, as a failure when it's actually, if you flip it, flip it over, you can say, well, we learned something, you know, we're, we're not going to do that again. We're going to go a different direction. Yeah. That's uh. so we, I mean, we use the, you know, the sort of Deming PDSA language in terms of the structure and the approach for our experiments that we run on those smaller change ideas. And that, that's one of the things I didn't anticipate is the very first one we ran it was a pretty experienced teacher that I had a long, you know, working relationship with. And he said, oh, man, this experiment failed. And I said, no, we learned something. We learned very quickly not to do that thing anymore and move on to something else. So, you know, he was like, oh, yeah, I didn't didn't really think about it like that. But we always think about experiments and, and failure. And then we don't always think about the, the flip side, which is the learning that is, is the whole point of the experiment in the first place. Right. Well, well John, I know we only have a, a couple of minutes left. Um, uh, I think Skip mentioned that you had a book out recently. Is that correct? I'm working on a book. It's uh, okay. I, I have a I have an ebook that I published in May, just pretty informally that that I, um, you know, people can get on the website. Um, but I'm working on an actual book, um, kind of in the in the phase of the manuscript is done, at least the draft is, and um, sort of shopping around the publisher. So I'm a first time author, so you know, um, learning a lot through that. And, and and last night on, on your website, I put in my email address and you said that you would send me your ebook as soon as you got a chance. So uh, I'm, I'm just reminding you, I want you to send it to me. Yeah, I think I did. I think I said oh, well, maybe you have. I, ha- I haven't checked my uh, my Gmail <laughs> account today. So you I think I did. Have. Yeah. Um, right. Well, good luck on your book. I also have a manuscript that I'm shopping around for publishers. It is very hard thing to do. But uh, are uh, you really? Luck on I, your didn't, journey. I, didn't, I didn't know yeah. that. I'll tell you about it. Okay. That's very uh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. We should trade uh, war stories at some point. Uh, it's not easy. Uh, oh, no. Uh, well, you know, before we let you go, any any last words you want to leave with our audience? No, I mean, I think I've had a, a great chance to share. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, you know, if anybody's interested in that, that ebook, um, I'm, I'm happy to share it uh, via email. Or I can, I'm also on LinkedIn if uh, people want to reach out that way. Okay, well, John, uh, we certainly appreciate it, and uh, maybe we'll have you back on the show one day. Great. I appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity. Okay. All right. Thanks, guys. See you later.